eight, seven, six. Lisa Boucher. How are you doing today, Lisa? I'm great, Ben. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, taking the time to come on the show today. I really do appreciate it. So let's uh, let's jump right in. I want to know, what is your story? My story is about being an agent of change, about changing lives um, through our experiences, through the things that we've been through. And for me, it was addiction and not a typical addiction story because there's a million of them out there now. There's so many voices, but mine is really about why do we have to get to where it's this dramatic, devastating story? So being raised with an alcoholic mom who had one of those stories, when it came around my turn and I'm realizing like, wow, I'm going down a bad path, I was able to, through, I guess, people in my life, through my motherhood, found sobriety later in her life at 48, And I was able to realize earlier on that, wow, I can address this because I seem to, you know, the the little saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So I had all of the isms and the behavior. And just because it hadn't escalated to a point of where you can't deny it anymore or where you're devastating your family, et cetera, I decided, okay, I'm nipping this in the bud. And I got sober. And it changed my life. And as a result of that, I've been able to go on and do things that have helped other people to change their lives. And even just being a sober mother, I got sober before I had my children. And so my sons, I have twin boys and well, baby, do they have the predisposition to addiction? I think they do from a genetic standpoint, but their environment was was drastically different from the one that I was raised in. I was able to teach them coping skills, which is something that a lot of people who fall into addiction don't have. Um, I didn't really have parents that were able to parent adequately in any kind of way. And when you're running amok, pretty much your whole teenage years and raising yourself, you're gonna either do a poor job or a really horrible job. And I think I did a poor job, but was able to amend that later on. So we can have these things happen to us, but I think at some point too, When we reach adulthood, we have to take responsibility. We don't always cause our wounds, but we are responsible for healing our wounds. That is such a powerful sentiment that it may not, we may not be causing it, but we absolutely have to take ownership of that and to, to do something about it and to course correct and put ourselves on a better path. So I'm, I'm curious to learn, How did you, and I know you talked about it a little bit, but how did you specifically start to go down that that path, that path of addiction? How did that really begin for you? Was there a pivotal moment? Um, I think it begins like it does for so many kids, probably for millions of people already who are going down that path because it starts in high school for many. And that's where it started for me. I had two older sisters, so at a very young age, 12, 13, I'm drinking a few beers here and there, and I'm starting to smoke a little pot. It's nothing that's daily. It's not impeding my life. Um, I had a horse, and I think my horse absolutely saved me from falling harder, faster into addiction because I was in love with the horse. He is still the love of my life. He's long gone but a quarter horse. And um, so that absolutely helped delay the trajectory of my path. But that's where it starts in high school with older sisters, older friends, older brothers, whatever the case may be. And the culture, which is getting worse. Um, When I was growing up, even though my mother was an alcoholic, she didn't really start drinking till later. Her started with prescription Valium. So that's what started her addiction. And then she just like went all out early, early, early. But for me, it was a much more gradual thing like it is for so many. 
And I think it's important to have these kind of conversations so people can recognize what it might look like for them. And what it looked like for me is not necessarily drinking in excess all the time, but it's when I did drink, how did that start to affect me? And as I got into my 20s, it started to affect me like this. My friends were graduating from college, they were moving on with their lives, and I'm still in college. I couldn't seem to graduate. So when you're in college for a decade, that says something. That something is... And you can blame it on circumstances, money. Um, I blamed it on, well, I'm not sure what I want to do. So I kept switching majors and just that kind of thing. So that's how it was starting to early manifest. Um, I had no I had no determination. If, if things got too hard, I would quit. It was just easier to quit and move on to something else, whether then, because I didn't have the coping skills or the ability to work through difficult situations. My solution was always, well, move on, put that aside, I'm done, I quit and move on to something that maybe I can accomplish or be successful at. And eventually what happens is the same thing over and over. So I just kept moving on to different things and had a million different careers and um, you know, was a hairdresser, a flight attendant, trained horses for a while, bartending, you know, just, drifting like a little drifter kind of thing so and all along the alcohol is there but you can get away with a lot when you're in your 20s and what it didn't seem that abnormal but again it was how was it impacting me so I started because at this some point this time in my I think I was 21 when my mother finally sobered up so that was instrumental and I started to see her change from this literally wreck of a person who was unemployable, incapable of functioning at all, very sick physically. Um, I saw her begin to morph into this really amazing person. And she did it through the 12 steps. She got into recovery and that is what worked for her. She went to rehab. Finally, a physician after 25 years of addiction, finally, because she did try to find help, but they steered her toward medication and kept misdiagnosing her as manic depression, manic depressive, or um, your bipolar or some other thing, which none of it was true because once she sobered up, she never took another pill. So that's another issue that I think really trips people up. And we could go all day on, on that alone, where I think healthcare really feeds into a lot of people's addictions and causes a lot more harm. I know the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm, but these doctors are doing all sorts of harm to a lot of people with prescribing medications as opposed to addressing the underlying substance abuse first. And that's exactly what happened to my mother. So she is now changing and morphing into this great person. And I'm continuing to see, I started to, she was teaching me a little bit about how alcoholism is a progressive disease. So when I started to see my drinking go from weekends to now maybe Wednesday and Thursday night and the weekends, there's a progression. And those are some early signs that people could could look for. And instead of rationalizing and saying, oh, it's fine, everyone's doing it. And, and that was, I think, what got me sober was being honest about my life and what I was doing. That's what helped change my life because I could have easily rationalized the behavior I was married to a professional man at the time and, and still am. Um, we're still married, amazingly enough. But um, yeah, he's my second husband. But I could have rationalized, we're young. We don't have children yet. Everybody's going out, including my husband. And I could have rationalized that. But it was affecting me differently than it was the other people that we were socializing with. And I was noticing that maybe they would drink a lot, but then they would get on with their life. And the next day, I'm still thinking about at noon, okay, what am I going to have to drink after work kind of thing. So when those little thoughts keep creeping in and you're becoming preoccupied with alcohol in the middle of the day, worrying about what you're going to do on the way home. Those are early signs 
that alcohol is way too important in your life, that alcohol was way too important in my life and was starting to take over subtly, very subtly. Um, again, like I said, I didn't like the way I reacted. I would either have crying spells or anger fits, or it was just not who I am. I'm a pretty even keeled person. Um, I might have a little bit of a temper in there, but overall I'm not up and down. I'm pretty rational. So this behavior was very abnormal for me. And again, I decided to like, look at why am I behaving like this? And it seemed to be the only times I did feel depressed or erratic or crazy in my head was when alcohol was involved. And when I wasn't drinking, I found that I was getting more and more preoccupied with when am I going to drink next? So that is another unhealthy sign because that's a normal, vicious cycle. Well, it is. And normal social drinkers, you know, people say, I, I feel like we've normalized alcoholism in that people drink excessively every day. And just because they're doing it with another group of friends who equally drink excessively, they call it social drinking. But actually, that's not. We have normalized alcoholism to a point in our culture that it's downright scary. It's, it's very scary for the children coming up because I know as a sober parent, I was, in, in, I was just a way different parent that I would have been had I been drinking, even if I wasn't drinking alcoholically. But my focus was on my sons, teaching them, making them independent, giving them coping skills, helping them solve their own problems instead of being a helicopter parent and solving them for them. I wanted them to have a little bit of grit. And I don't think kids and some people have a lot of grit, very fragile. Everybody's a fragile flower and that doesn't help you get through life. I mean, the, this world can be hard, you know? Life is kind of cruel sometimes. It's beautiful, it's amazing but it's not for the faint of heart. And I didn't want to go down. Thank God doctors were not pushing medication when I was going through. And I never went to a doctor to get sober. I followed what my mother did. I jumped into a 12-step program. So as opposed to going any sort of medical route to diagnose me, because really alcoholism is the only disease that is self-diagnosed. Because unless you believe you have a problem, it doesn't matter. I mean, we all hear stories of people who have been to rehab eight, nine times and it doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work because they're not ready to stop. So they already know, they know, believe me, they know in the back of their mind that they have a problem, but they may have a lot of enablers around them. They may have um, people that, that have good finances. It's, they struggle getting sober because they don't have a lot of repercussions. Personal, maybe. Maybe they're on their third marriage. Maybe their kids are angry at them. But they're still able to hold up their structure and their framework within their life. So sometimes it's very hard for those people to admit they have a problem. Let's talk a little bit more about, about the culture. Because mm -hmm. I've seen, I mean, I'm 24 and, and I just got out of college. And I've seen... I mean, rampant alcoholism, either that is existing or there are definitely signs that it is developing. I mean, when when you see an entire like an entire group of people who every like every night they're looking for another reason to go out, another reason to just binge drink and to go and and it's it's literally like they're coming together to try to figure out more ways to get more drunk more often. And it's like, that is, that seems like a very toxic and dangerous place to be. And I saw that all throughout college from a lot of different, a lot of different people. And it, it seems to me like there definitely is a cultural norm of, Hey, on weekends we go out and we get hammered and every story now has to start with, well, last Friday when I was blackout and if it doesn't start with that, it's not a good story, right? Like that is, that is crazy to me. Well, it is crazy. And young people like you, Ben, need to start speaking up. I'm glad we're doing this. I'm glad we're talking about it because 
I mean, this is nothing new, but I think it's getting worse and worse and worse. And now, especially with there's more drugs out there, the drugs are getting scarier and scarier. But it's it's indicative of a hurting culture of, is it social media? I don't know. I don't have the answers of why this is happening, but I can I can say that it points clearly to some things that I believe contribute to it, and social media is a big aspect of it. How so? How so? Well, I think people are more and more dissatisfied with their lives because they're constantly comparing their life with the glimpses they see on social media that are little snapshots of maybe real life, maybe not even real life. I was listening to a podcast or something. They were talking about how there are now apps where you can Photoshop your into like beach scenes or whatever, and then post them on your Instagram. Or you can, people are running out like Lear jets to go have photo ops so they can I mean it's fake what is going on that we are so unhappy that we have to like be fake about who we are and that that points back to low self-esteem why am I not good enough as I am why is it not okay to not have maybe this crazy exciting life with all the bells and whistles that usually it's about money material things what is wrong with maybe living in a little small town and going to school and getting A's and B's and just being average? There's nothing wrong with that. But we have made average like a bad word, like it's not okay. So people don't feel good about themselves. In addition to that, we have kids being raised by parents who have no self-esteem, who their solution is to drink, 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 to use their kids' accomplishments for bragging rights for themselves. Kids are being pushed into things that they don't really want to go in, or they're made to be someone. Maybe they're really not all this pressure, pressure, pressure. And I was working with kids for a while, and I heard a lot of that. These kids are, they don't want to disappoint their parents, but they're being pressured to be like super kids, get all A's so mom can slap that bumper sticker on, my kid's an A still, this kind of thing. And, and I think we have to step back. And if, if people felt better about themselves, then they wouldn't have the need to dump this stuff on their kids. So it's like we perpetuate the culture of, I can't cope. I don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like anything I do is good enough. I need to be better. I need to show the world that I'm, you know, prettier, stronger, smarter, whatever. And so all of that is fed into this very toxic where everybody just wants to numb out. So the, the, the drinking to oblivion, you know, when people laugh about blacking out, that's serious. I mean, people are sitting in prison who have blacked out and have no idea that they killed someone in a car, that they, you know, committed some robbery, stabbed someone, whatever the case may be, in blackouts. And I got sober without ever having one blackout. So what does that say? I'm, I'm identifying myself as an alcoholic. And I chose to quit drinking and I never had a blackout. So to think that you're not alcoholic or you don't have a problem if you're blacking out, this is serious. I mean, that's already addiction. And just because you're young and can get away with it. So I guess we need more young people to stop drinking that Kool-Aid and saying, you know what? Why do you want to numb out, destroy your brain, maybe do something that you can never take back the consequences of one night of drunkenness truly can change your life. And we've all read those stories. We've read about the beautiful young college people, men and women that have lost their lives in college while drunk, either to alcohol poisoning. I know when my sons were in college, some kid was drunk, got on the roof of the frat house and fell off and died. Um, these things are so sad and so preventable, but so then we just have to say, why do we glorify drinking? And I think we need to start pushing back. And I was talking to a woman last week and she said, well, her friends, then people make fun of you and say, well, you're not fun. Are you being a prude? And, and at some point you have to say, well, if that's what you think. I'm sorry you feel that way. 
but I don't think I should feel ashamed for doing something good for myself. So why don't we ask that? Why are people being shamed for doing something good for themselves? Either having an off button with their drinking, saying, okay, yeah, I want to have a drink with my friends, but I'm going to stop it too. There's, you know, what's wrong with that? But people, if you pass up and say no thank you to a piece of cake, nobody questions you. But God forbid you say no thanks, I don't want to drink. And sometimes, depending on the person, you get a lot of questions. Why aren't you drinking? Oh, you're no fun. And we need to push back on this kind of behavior and, and be strong enough and be okay if those people walk out of our lives. And, and that's what it took for me to get sober. And the people that could not honor and respect my decision to do something really great for myself, and that was quit drinking, then I just decided early on, I don't need those people in my life. And so I have found a whole new group of friends that they either drink just a little bit or they don't drink at all or they're sober. And you realize when you get out of that, that not everybody is a heavy drinker. Absolutely. The the one thing I will say um, that, that I want to give you a little bit of pushback on is um, the, the notion of, of average and um, you know, some, some thoughts about that. I actually feel like it's very healthy for people to constantly seek improvement uh, and, and develop themselves and learn and grow and to be better and to expand in, in a very healthy way. And so I think for people who, you know, when, when, when you're talking about average saying, Hey, this is my life and I'm happy with it. I, I don't necessarily think that makes them average. I actually think being happy makes, makes them extraordinary. Um, but, but also I, I also don't, I, I think we can go too far to say, Oh, well then people who are striving and people who are high performers and are constantly trying to get better and better and better, then it's almost like going the other way and shaming them for wanting to do better. And so, yeah. so instead of, instead of saying, um, you know, which, which I agree with saying like, Hey, enough is enough. Like, Hey, I don't want to have any more drinks or, you know, I don't, I don't want to drink or I don't want to do that. And that's okay. And I don't deserve to get shamed for that. I think it's really important to also note that on the other side of that, of, of using that drive to go and go and go further and further and better and better, but for good things, really channeling that into a good, healthy, um, avenue to, to try to stifle that to me, that's really bad too, because, because well, then we're halting true. progress. No, I, no, Ben, I agree with you. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we shouldn't keep striving, but when you're drinking heavily, you can't strive for better. You're not living up to your potential. You're not doing the things that you want to do. Exactly. And on the other side of that, with the average, I'm saying for, there are some people in the world that are going to be C students and that's the best they can do. Okay. Are we, can we agree on that or disagree on that? But yeah, I mean, I I've seen them though, where, you know, maybe, okay, maybe B's or what, whatever, just using grades as, as an example. But um, not everybody is going to be the CEO. Not everybody is able to be the CEO. And so for people, they can strive and do the best they can. I guess that's the bottom line. We can only do the best that we can each individually. And that's different for everybody. But people, I think some people feel that their best isn't good enough. And so I, I agree with you there you know I mean? on, yeah. on so people feeling that. Yeah, that we can only do the best that we can do. And we don't need to feel bad if that's not as good as what you can do or somebody else can do. Well, I, I feel like we should definitely be competing against ourselves and, and right. we're trying to get better. But I, I definitely don't agree though that, that, not everybody can can go and perform at, at the CEO level. I, I actually think anybody can do it. I think it's a it's a matter of do you want to do it? Like, it, is that something that you desire? Is that something that you want to deal with? Because it comes with a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of hard work. It's very difficult. So, not everybody wants to do it, but I think everybody could do it. So that that's the only distinction that that. Yeah, no, um, I mean, yeah, maybe I don't know, but I, yeah. I see where you're heading with that. And you're right. It's, 
there's just, I, the bottom line is we have got to be free to be who we are and not exactly. feel bad about it. Exactly. Right? Without feeling the peer pressure of it's not good enough or I need to create a fake world and lie about who I am and what I am because that just makes people really feel like crap about themselves. And then the substance abuse or whatever tends to increase. And that's absolutely true when people pretend they're someone they're not. And there's a lot of alcoholics that, you know, I talk to in recovery now. And, and that was a common thread through many is trying to be someone they knew they weren't. Or, you know, to your point, not knowing they were capable of far more and not living up to any potential. And I think I felt somewhat. I mean, I knew I had a lot of abilities, but I was wasting, wasting my time, wasting my talent, wasting my gifts. And then you just drink more to forget about it and not worry about it. And oh, well, I'll think about it tomorrow, kind of the whole Scarlett O'Hara thing. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated issue. There are no absolutes with addiction, with substance abuse, with why people fall into it. But some of the common threads are the things that we're talking about, the pressure, the not feeling good enough, the lack of coping skills, um, just feeling whatever sorts of family dynamics sometimes people come from. There's the kid who always felt mom and dad paid attention to everybody else, whether real or perceived, that is their perception. Or, um, you know, there's a trauma is another huge piece with addiction. And some, I was talking to a young man this weekend, came from a very well-to-do family. From the outside, they had it all but a lot of substance abuse in the family. And he ended up on heroin and went to rehab, thankfully, finally, and um, has a year sober. And we were talking and said, you know, this is the other face of addiction that people don't want to see. The affluent families that feel like, well, because we have all this stuff and all this money, our kids are fine. And th there's a lot of hurting children that, in those homes and they grow up to be hurting adults. So there are no demographics for addiction. And I think the stigma still is what keeps people from addressing it at an earlier stage, like I did, because they don't want to identify as an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever. And I say to those people, well, then just say, I realized I didn't like the way alcohol made me feel. That's enough of a reason to quit right there. Or I didn't like the way I behaved when I drank. That's enough of a reason to quit. If you ate strawberries and broke out in a rash, you probably wouldn't eat them anymore. So with alcohol, if you find that your behavior, your, you change and you don't live up to your morals and standards when you're drinking, maybe it's something to think about. And there's all those sober challenges out there and, you know, for people. And, and I think some people probably have realized when they couldn't go for 29 or 30 days without drinking that, wow, maybe, maybe I have a problem. Probably most of them don't do anything about it yet because they haven't had enough consequences. And so I guess my message is, why do you have to have a bunch of horrible consequences before you realize like, okay, this isn't working for me? I agree. I agree. You know, I actually stopped um, drinking alcohol completely about almost about two years ago now. Um, in, let's see, I think August 8th of 2019 will be so three days as of this uh, recording will be two full years since wow no no That's alcohol crazy. at all and and thank you very much and it was you know I, I feel like it was it was um you know i i saw you know it wasn't that big of an issue in my life at that point but i saw how the path i was going down it, it just wasn't going to help me it wasn't going to help in, in any way, shape or form. And 
it actually in in the in the beginning it manifested itself as like a like a body cleanse you know just get everything all the unhealthy toxins out you know just, just get all that stuff out and it started out as a either a 30 or 60 or 90 day cleanse and afterwards it's like wow i feel great so let's just let's just continue it but um you know i i love the idea of catching it early and before it, it before it even becomes a problem say hey i don't need this in my life like i have so many other things that are just so much more worthy of my time and my resources and my attention that i'd rather focus on those things um so i'm i'm curious to learn about um uh, learn learn more about your work and you know, having gone through this experience and having these these very strong feelings, which you know, I'm I'm so happy that there are, you know, people like you who have very strong feelings and are, and are trying to help other people. I'm very grateful for that. Um, where do you find that your work has the most impact on people? Um, I would probably say with women. I've had the most, there's been a few men, but mostly I focus and, and, you know, when I write or whatever, it's, it's mostly geared toward women and I'm on social media a lot. And so women gravitate to my work and it's about, like I said, changing lives. I've had people that have changed their lives by either reading things I've wrote or, getting on and having dialogue with me uh, via messenger or whatever, or picking up the phone. I've invited several to pick up the phone. And so, and, and it's just amazing when these women, and some of them, it's, it's a process for a lot where they, we might start talking a year ago and then it takes a full year. And then all of a sudden they're like, guess what, Lisa, I'm sober. I've been sober 90 days or, you know, because it's just, I mean, congratulations to you for what you did, but that is not what most people do. Most people fight it tooth and nail. Maybe that speaks to you really, you know, we're just like you said, realizing it could be a problem where, as opposed to someone like myself where that addiction kind of grabs hold. So that, that is a different, you know, place, but I think a lot of people can end up in full blown addiction. If you keep practicing, if you're going to drink every day, well, whether you have that predisposition or not, chances are really good that you're going to end up in alcoholism or addiction. If you're you know, dabbling in some other highly addictive substance. So that's just goes without saying. So I think we have to speak to that and teach. Why are we practicing these things that are so harmful? And like you said, it doesn't do any good. I look back and like I said, what did I really give up? You realize that for me, I wasted a lot of time in bars because I loved going out. You know, you hear about these isolated people drinking in the closet. And, oh, no, that wasn't me. I was still young. So I'm out in the clubs and the bars and it's fun. But is it really fun? It's a waste of time. And that's time that you'll never get back. So when you start looking at like the benefits, and I think that's helped some women too, is to say, okay, instead of looking at what you're going to be giving up, look at the benefits of feeling better, your skin looks better, especially if you're vain at all. Um, you know, that I love, I don't know if you've seen on the internet, the before and after pictures for some people from their drinking and drugging, and then they show the after and it's stunning. I mean, there's no plastic surgery in the world that could make the difference of, you know, their skin and their eyes. It's like the sparkle in someone's eyes. That is such a gift to be able to see people go from these dead eyes to they're just, they sparkle again. And so my work is just, I feel like the people that resonate with my message are drawn to it. And I make myself very accessible, very easy to find. And I'm very responsive to messages and things like that. So it's not hard to, and, and some people they're like, well, are you like a recovery coach? And I know I don't charge for it because it was freely given to me 
And so I do do speaking and things like that on a different level. But as far as working one-on-one with people, I do it. It's a labor of love. Um, I have a heart for the children because I was one of those kids and especially moms that come to me. I want them so badly to get it. And, you know, I mean, all I can really do is share with them because you can't make someone get sober and do the hard work. Like we were saying earlier, everybody has the ability to be sober. Here's where I'm going to agree with you hundred percent. Absolutely. Everybody has the opportunity to be sober, but it's just a matter of who's going to grab it and who's going to be willing to do the work because you, you just don't get to be sober. I mean, I had to do a lot of work and go back and deal with my childhood, deal with my abusive father who was verbally and physically abusive and probably emotionally and, and mentally abusive as well. Um, I had to deal with that. I had to look at him as a fallible person who was struggling in his own way with my mother, who was just so off the chain and the way it affected, you know, the family. I had to look at my mother for the sick person that she was. And God bless her. I never felt any anger toward her at all because she was a wonderful woman and she was just extremely sick and never could find the right help. But with that said, you know, like I said, she didn't get sober till I was 21. So there was some grieving of, I had a mother, but I really didn't have a mother. So I didn't get the nurturing, the guidance, the encouragement that children you should get, hopefully get from their parents. So I had to work through that. And then I had to look at my own behavior, how a lot of my poor choices contributed to the things that were imploding in my life were just some bad decisions on my part, like my first marriage, that there were many red flags that he was as every bit as an addict, I mean, probably way worse than my mother, if that was even possible. I mean, this guy was off the chain with the alcohol. And I ignored every red flag because I needed a roommate. So, you know, we, we make these decisions selfishly and then blame others. And so I had to like, look at that. It, you know, that was my choice to do that. And when I was able to get honest, I realized, yes, I married him, not because I loved him, but because my roommate was getting married and I didn't want to move back home. So I did the next best thing and, and marry this guy that I know for two months, who's crazier than I am. So, you know, we do these things. And then if we stay in addiction, we tend to blame everybody else blame our parents, blame, you know, and, and no, that's recovery is about taking responsibility, taking ownership, making the hard changes. But here again, not everybody wants to do that. And not everybody can do that because they've got some really traumatic experiences that they just aren't willing to open that scab. I want to talk about how you came to pick up the pen and and start writing and, and start creating what was that what was the genesis of that where did that come from wow well okay this is exactly how it happened after i got sober i went to nursing school and i graduated nursing school a few days later i was standing in my kitchen and i heard an audible voice say, now I want you to write a book. And I thought I was crazy, truly. And so I ran around the house and I went in every room because I thought maybe my husband was home. And like I said, my sons were about three or four at the time. They were four. No one was home. And it was just bizarre. So to me, that was God. And I didn't do anything with it for maybe a month or so, but I felt this And I remember saying, well, okay, God, if you want me to write a book, I need a story. I didn't have any story. And a few months later, I had a book in my head, which was a fiction. So the first four books I wrote were fiction. Yeah. And that's what started it. And then I had to like, back then, I didn't even have a computer. So then I bought a computer and it sat in a corner for about another two months. And then I went to the adult school at night and learned how to like work word because I didn't know how to do that. 
and I started. And so then I, I wrote my first book and it's just been, um, you know, fiction, fiction, fiction. And while I'm writing this fiction, my mother used to say, cause she's sober now and she's say, Lisa, why don't you write about women and alcohol or, or alcoholism? But there's a lot of legs to that stool. I mean, we could go down so many rabbit holes with this and I really didn't know where I wanted to go with it. And then she passed in 2011 and I feel like maybe it was her parting gift to me or something. And about a year later, it dawned on me about writing about addiction and not having to hit these low bottoms. And so that's really what started it, though, was a voice, a voice coming out of nowhere is what started my writing. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's true. It's a true story. So now that you've embraced being being an author and, and writing and creating, how have you seen or, or what what has your development been as far as who you are as a person, what what your identity is, you know, what what your mission is, your purpose is? Well, that's really a cool question because my mission and purpose, I'm still working a couple days as a nurse. Um, I like that. I like being in, I, I work in mental health. So it speaks to what I write and talk about. And I like seeing what's going on in healthcare so that when I do blog or whatever, it's in real time on real issues instead of what I saw 20 years ago in the hospital. So that is one reason why I do like to keep my foot in the door of healthcare. Um, but I feel like as a person I'm in, I feel like I'm finally in the space I was meant to be in. I'm helping others. I'm doing what I absolutely love. I love to write and there were years when I stepped away from it. I got frustrated with it or I got busy with my sons who were in sports and all this, but there was always that something about it that I, I would just feel a little restless. And it was every time I'd pick back up the pen or start writing again, it would be like, ah, and then I'd be like, why do I stop? Cause clearly this is who I am. But I think it took me like four books to, I felt okay about saying I'm a writer. And I'm an author. This is who I am. But I, I guess I never felt like legitimate enough to do that, you know, just because I guess if you don't sell a million books, then you don't get to call yourself an author. And then I was like, well, wait a minute, kind of like what we were speaking to earlier. So that was about me. Did I not feel OK about myself or or was I buying into the narrative that unless you're this famous author, you don't get to be a writer. So I had some messages that I had to smash and things like that. And it took years to like chip away. You know, I kept doing it, but it's almost like, you don't. I didn't believe myself. And then I feel like I've just like sprung out of this cocoon where it's like, okay, I've been sober 30 years. I've been a nurse for 25 years. I'm a child of an alcoholic. I'm in recovery myself. I've heard and seen more things that would blow most people's not mind from hearing other addicts and alcoholics and from working in hospitals, in emergency rooms and psych wards, right? So there's nothing that surprises me. There's nothing really, I can't think of anything new that I, that I hear anymore. I mean, I really believe I've heard most of it. Every once in a blue moon, I'll get a little surprise, like, wow, that's new. But most of it is recycled trauma, awful, whatever, just different situations, different players. So with all that knowledge, it was like, I have something to offer. I've got something to give now because, and here again, maybe I didn't feel confident enough 15 years ago to speak about it, but I'm very confident about my message about there's a lot of voices out there. I don't always agree with all of them. And I'm sure a lot of people don't agree with me and that's fine. And I think we need those disagreements and keep talking, you know, because all of the messages are important because you don't know, maybe I will touch people that others can't and vice versa. So it's this big collective voice of we do recover. We don't have to hit these horrible bottoms. Um, there are no hopeless cases. I have seen hopeless cases that everybody gave up on them when I even thought, oh, they're not going to make it and they make it. 
So there is a spiritual component there that I believe is beyond. Um, I, I'm a firm believer in God. I know some people aren't, but there is a higher energy to the universe then, if that's what you want to believe. Because some of the things that I've seen are inexplicable. And I've seen more miracles in recovery than I have in healthcare. So I'm wow. just at a point now where I feel like I, I know what I'm talking about. That's amazing. And, and you know, I've, I've actually written some myself, um, both, you know, published a couple books, um, written, written some poetry and, um, you know, I'm actually working on, uh, I've never actually said this publicly before, but um, I'm working on a, on a new piece that really is, is going to be documenting uh, my philosophy on, on uh, various topics. And, you know, there is that hurdle in the beginning of like, okay, well, I wrote something and I published it, but does that actually make me an author? Does that actually make me a writer? And, and this is my belief, but I think it does. I think if, if, if we take the pen and put it to paper we take the time to do that and express ourselves, regardless of how many copies that it sells, it still makes you an author because because you're putting forth the effort and you're and and, and you're putting yourself out there and you're making yourself vulnerable. And I, I think that I think it's a really beautiful thing when people do that. Um, and it was very fascinating to to hear that story. So thank you, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And I do think you're an author because. I, and you probably experienced this, you know, when you, st when I started writing, if, if you mentioned to someone, oh, I'm writing a book, or they ask you, what are you doing? You say, everybody's all of a sudden writing a book. But how many people really finish their books? Like you said, you know, everybody wants that. Oh, I wrote a book, but you know, you're a writer when you keep going back to it, whether it's successful, unsuccessful, you know, whatever happens to it. And you just keep going back like that dog with a bone. And I, you know, so it's like, after I wrote this last book, well, I've already started another one because another idea has come forth. So I think I'm a writer, you know, I'm going on now six books. And every time after I finish a book, I think, oh, maybe I don't have another book in me. And voila, you know, but I'm not a speedy writer. So it's like uh, there's two or three years sometimes in between my books. Like Nora Roberts, the, she, I think, she, I don't know if she's still the most prolific author of all time. I don't know how people like her and Daniel Steele that just crank them out. Like, how do they do that? God bless them. That is an amazing gift. But that's not where I fall. I mean, I need downtime in between and then something will, will start to emerge and then I'll know it's a book when I just feel like it won't go away and I need to write it. So that's kind of where I am. And I, I've been bad. I'll be honest with you this summer. I think I almost needed to take some like a break. I mean, I haven't really written much. I am tiddling with this book that I'm working on, but um, I'm going next week to a monastery, a silent monastery. And that's where I'm hoping to like finish the draft because I, I just need some quiet, you know, and I feel like I need to regenerate a little bit and I'm allowing myself to do that instead of just working, working. Cause especially as a creative, it, it, I have to re for me, I, I need to regroup. I mean, I'm not a endless well. And so I feel kind of depleted right now. So I'm, I, I'm giving myself like a month to just kind of, you know, stay, not write a whole lot. I'm tiddling with it. I'm on the third chapter, thinking more about it. Cause you know, we, we're never not working. We're thinking in our heads and that's kind of what I'm doing. I've been writing it in my head. So I'm hoping when I get the no distractions and get some, a couple days of prayer and just quiet that it will flow out the way I'm hoping that it will. So I hope you give yourself time to regenerate too, as a, a creative, we need to do that. You know, what's crazy. It, I literally from, I published my first book, July 3rd of 2016. Okay. And it was called CEO at 20, a little book for big dreams. It was the very oh. first one. And after that, I got so enthralled by the process of writing because what, what I feel like a lot of people may not think about is when you're writing, when you're creating, mm -hmm. 
you learn so, so much about the world, about yourself, mm -hmm. about life, right? And, and I was writing from a place of a lot of research. So I was just immersing myself and just feeding my brain. And so I, I published between, between the time when I, when I first started writing, just in like, you know, like bam, 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 bam. I, pro I published over 10 books in, in, wow. that, in that span of time, all while I was in, in college. And you know what? The time when, when um, I felt that social pressure was when most people would, come, they would open my door and they'd say, hey, we're all going out. You know, why don't you come with us? And I would say, sorry, I'm writing. And no, yeah, I love you, but no. And so, you know, I literally sat in my room and I would just write and write and write. And it was so cathartic and it was such a, a good experience. And I loved to learn and read. So it was like, I was getting to read in order to write, which doesn't always that make that much sense, but it made, it made sense to me and it still makes sense to me. So I published those books. After that period of time, I took like a two year hiatus mm -hmm. and I didn't, I didn't pick up the pen at all. And then in, in early this year, um, you know, I, I put out a book with one of my business partners and, you know, in, in, in that specific category, you know, we hit Amazon bestseller in those, in those, in, in a couple categories, but it was like, it took all that time to then put out that one book, which is a very specific book, but it's like, now I feel like that, that rejuvenation, that replenishment has really had time to take effect. And it's, it, it's, I know exactly what you mean. It's like, there's, there's something on the inside that's just, it's slowly coming up and it's slowly clawing its way out. It's built. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. So. Cool. You're an accomplished young man. That's really amazing. Actually. It's amazing. Well, thank you very much. And, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't say that to try to get, you know, a, no, a, applause or anything. I just wanted to share that with the you. The fact that if people are, let's go out and you're like, no, I'm going to write. That's an amazing commitment at a young age. Not that many people have the wherewithal to do that. They just don't. Well, it was, it, it was rewarding. You know, it was like, I, I was watching this documentary on, uh, on, on some of the top athletes in the world, in, in history, in, in history. And, you know, in, in one of the interviews with uh, this this hockey player, he was saying how when he was growing up, a lot of his friends would always ask him, hey, do you want to go to the movies? And he would say, no, I'm okay. And he would sit in his backyard and he would shoot hockey pucks for two hours instead. And and he was saying in the interview how his dad would ask him, hey, why don't you why don't you want to go to the movies? Isn't that something that you want to do? And And the player was like, no this is more fun for me. Yeah. And so it's like, it, you almost can't help but do it. It's, it's like, it's just, it's your, it's your natural inclination, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. No, there are those rare, rare gifts, right? Or gifts that people have. And if you can keep on a good path, you'll find them. I do believe that because the other thing with addiction, think of all the amazing talent and gifts that are snuffed out with all the lives that have been lost and with all of the people like when i was drinking i sure wasn't creating i wasn't writing um kind of thing so i think that's the other sad thing is there's a lot of brilliance and talent out there that is unrealized because drinking has taken over or it seems more fun to them to go out and drink as opposed to make something, build something, create something. And it's a shame. We don't really know what we're missing out on. We don't. The world doesn't know. It is such a shame because, you know, I think about a lot of my friends back then. And I mean, there's still more acquaintances today, honestly. Um, but it's like those are some very intelligent people. Those, those are people with a tremendous amount of talent in a, in a variety of different verticals or, or places. And it's like, to me, the creating, the act of creating, of building something and, and putting it out into the world, that's one of the most meaningful things ever. Of all time, it's one of the most meaningful things. And so the going out and drinking and, and, and going to bars and you know, to me, that just doesn't seem like a source 
or, or a sustainable a sustainable source of of inspiration and of happiness and of fulfillment and of of just goodness it, it just it just doesn't seem like a sustainable way to go about doing things and living well it's not and i think what people don't realize too is alcohol is a depressant so you've got a lot of people taking antidepressants because they're so depressed and then they go out and drink. And so why aren't doctors, which they don't, ask people about their drinking or say, you know what, I'm not going to prescribe anything for you until you address your drinking. But they don't, they won't do that. They don't want to do that and they won't because they know they won't have any patients. People will say the heck with you and go find another doctor, which is sad because that is often the reason why people are so unhappy and depressed and unmotivated because they're going to work. And think about this. If you work in an office building, you're inside all day, you drive home in your car or you stop at the bar, then you get into your house. And then who knows, you know, if you're a mom, you have kids, if you're whatever, you're not really taking care of yourself at all you're you're in an artificial environment 24 7 no fresh air no exercise no outdoors um alcohol medication and then do it all over again the next day and it's just no wonder people are so you know so i just think that we need to look at the way think things really are and call it out and make some changes if you want to be healthy or feel better. Start with the things that you actually have some control over. And that is diet and exercise and what you choose to drink and how you choose to spend your time in that. Those are things that we all can manage. And if you're not feeling good doing what you're doing, then make the changes. And if you're not willing to make the changes or you find you can't get away from the bar, whatever, then that's indicative of alcohol is no longer just an innocent pastime. Maybe you're not a full-blown alcoholic, but maybe you have alcohol use disorder and you're on that bell curve there. I like to say it's on a bell curve. And so no matter, you know, you're get both, you're all going to end up down here falling off the edge of the earth with it, or you can stop anytime along the way. So pick your place and, and, do what you need to do to get the help. There's so much help out there. There's so many blogs and podcasts. And like I said, I love the 12 steps. I know a lot of people, they bash it. I think they're magical, but whatever. There's all sorts of other recovery programs. Find something and you can do a lot of research from the comfort of your own home. And nobody has to know, because I know how that is early on. You're like all embarrassed and all scared. Like, what if people know? And this is the other thing. i got to make this point, Ben. People have said to me so many times, I was so embarrassed. I didn't want anyone to know I was an alcoholic. Or, And I'm like, okay, really? How many times were you drunk in public? How many times were you slurring your words? How They're going to find out. How many times did your friend see you stumbling out of the bar? And you, everybody's laughing and going, oh my gosh. So you weren't embarrassed about that, but you're embarrassed to say, I'm going to stop drinking. Do you see how twisted our whole mindset and, and our culture is that people, I mean, there was a young kid, he was probably 19 and there was a guy that was at this function and this guy was stumbling to his car. I couldn't even believe it was going to drive. And he must've been fun to talk to because I overheard the guys, these two young kids going, God, he was so cool and so fun to talk to. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is their role model. This guy is drunk as a skunk, can barely walk. And he's, these kids are watching him walk to his car and get in his car and drive. Terrible, terrible role model. But this is what's getting celebrated and congratulated, as opposed to the sober guy who might not be the life of the party, but actually makes some sense and is going to walk out and get into his car and drive safely home and not hurt anybody else or himself. And that person is passed by. So we, we've got some twisted notions, I think, just in our culture in general. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you so, so much for uh, coming on to the show today and 
uh, having this discussion with me. I think it's very important that we talk about things like this. And I'm, I'm very grateful that you'd carve out the time to come chat with me. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. It was great talking with you. Have a great day. Absolutely. And to everybody who's watching and listening, I want to thank y'all very, very much. Uh, your time is very valuable. So I'm very grateful that y'all choose to share some of it with us today. So thank you very much. I love y'all so, so much. Uh, y'all the reason that I do this. So thank you again, um, Lisa, thank you. And I will see y'all on the next episode. Take care.